problem was that he didn't have people around him who would say anything other than yes, President, to him. Four managers in a, in a season, it's not great for many stretch of the imagination for the players, but uh, it's the cards we've been dealt with and we're, we're trying our best to, to get the results. I saw a team without guts, without heart, without courage, without anything. I just don't think that, that league suited how they wanted to manage. He was just a million miles out of his depth. You're used to bad games and you're used to bad results, but I'm not used to being embarrassed and ashamed by the club. Hello everyone and welcome to episode two of The Circus Upstairs. I'm James Masters, journalist and long-suffering Leighton Orient supporter. I'm Matt Simpson, author of the book Leighton Orient Greats, currently the 600,972nd most popular book on Amazon. Wow. I'm thinking that isn't that bad. I think that's fantastic. You should you should put that on all your business cards, I think. There's got to be a lot more books on Amazon than that. Yeah, I would have thought so. Okay, um, do you want to just remind us where we've got up to in this story? Yes, of course. So despite some big money signings, Orient had played eight games. They'd won two, drawn four, lost two, and was 17th in the table. Russell Slade, the hero of the previous season, had been forced out after a very public ultimatum, and he joined Cardiff City. And money was being spent unwisely, with Mauro Milanese, the club's sporting director, taking up residence at the Dorchester Hotel in London. I find that outrageous. He should have stayed at Claridge's. It's much classier. Yeah, yeah. He was slumming it somewhat, I have to say. <laughs> um, we spoke quite a lot to Matt Porter about those early days in the last episode, and I think it will be helpful to get uh, another overview from him of what was going on behind the scenes at the club at the time. So here's Matt. From what I know, in Italian football, the president is is the you know the all seeing eye and the and the sort of literally the presidential figure at the club, and obviously in England we we don't tend to go for president. It's more like chairman or owner, and even then you know the le levels of chief exec, director of football, manager. You know those people all have a say, and there's a little bit more democracy and perhaps diplomacy rather than just a take it or leave it on on my decisions. And and I, and I felt very sorry for Russ and the staff and, and the players because. Even though we'd lost in the playoff final, there was clearly a lot of uh, ambition that we could go again the following season with pretty much the same group of players. And, you know, you, you want to give people a chance. So, you, you know, you sort of say, to, you, you, you want to think that Bichetti will listen and, and, they, and they will learn. And the problem was that he didn't have people around him who would say anything other than yes, president, to him. So, I mean, people might not believe this, but you can ask Barry if you like. If, if Barry says something that I think is wrong, I'll tell him. And that actually works pretty well because he listens and then he'll either say, well, hard luck, I'm the chairman, we're doing it. Or he'll say, no, Matt, you're right, we'll do it your way. So what Bichetti didn't have was that kind of person around him. He only had people around him who used to run around doing what he said. And the problem with that was that all these things that he wanted to bring in that were unworkable cause problems because there was nobody to sort of say no to him and and he wouldn't listen to to my comments so that, that's where the sort of dictatorships re, re, really sort of came from oh matt if you'd only said no when barry hearn said to you shall i sell the club to francesco bacchetti just kidding matt moving on 
we are going to introduce another character, actually my favourite character from this whole sorry mess, who was the CEO that Bacchetti appointed, uh, a man by the name of Alessandro Angeleri. And we're going to turn back to Matt Porter to explain how that appointment was made. Yeah, uh, so so th- there was this fella, and I can't remember his name, but he was going to be the chief exec. And he was a, a relatively young fella, I'd say mid-30s, banker from Italian, but like a banker from working up in Docklands. And he was going to be the chief exec and he was pretty sensible and he, his English was excellent and he lived in England and he, he understood it. And, and I thought he would have been pretty decent, to be honest. And I spent quite a lot of time with him going through things because he was going to be taking my job. And then he just disappeared. Um, you know, he obviously decided for whatever reason the job wasn't for him. Um, and he disappeared. Now, Alessandro was pretty much the production manager for the reality TV show. So for those that don't know, the production manager's job is to source all the equipment and the facilities and everything like that. And I remember him pretty much saying that he sold TV cameras for a living. And I think he basically, almost like a day or two before the press conference, he just sort of became the, the default chief exec because there was nobody else to do it because this other fella had disappeared. Alessandro was a very nice guy, very friendly, you know, very um, welcoming. You know, I don't think he had the slightest idea in the world how to be a chief exec of a football club. And that's from someone who was given the job at 26 years old, having been a journalist. You know, I think he was miles out of his depth. And I don't think he particularly tried to do the job better. I think all he wanted to do was run around and do what Bacchetti wanted him to do, which is fair enough. If the guy's paying your wages and, and paying your rent and all whatever else he was getting out of it, then then why wouldn't you? But he, um, he yeah, he, he wasn't really a, capable of doing the job or, or didn't put enough effort in. I just think that how the hell was that allowed to happen? And what did you think was going to happen? So you're connected to Alessandro on LinkedIn, which I'm extremely impressed by. Let's have a look at his LinkedIn page. What does that reveal? So at the moment, I can I can tell you that he's a senior sales manager at the FSC Flight Simulation Centre. Um, so he's he's working in the airline industry. So my question to you is, will you ever take a flight again in your life? Should anyone ever take a flight again? Well, it's only a simulator, so it's not real. Mm. So I think we're safe. I, I still think we can have our summer holidays. But um, I don't know. His ineptitude runs far and wide i'm only getting boats from now on i'll then talk about the titanic we'll save that for another time <laughs> okay so we spoke to tom jeffs uh, who was a commercial manager at the time and he had a lot of first-hand experience of alessandro when he came into the job as the ceo so we're going to listen to a bit of tom talking about some of the things that happened at, at first that they sort of wanted to go through a couple of you know, budget things, but then that soon just went out the window. It was very much a case of everything was just focused around the team and this sort of Italian dream that they had. There was, you know, everyone behind the scenes was, you know, and I probably do speak on behalf of everyone, but felt very much neglected. They'd much rather have been at the training ground watching training and meeting players and trying to sign players than, than dealing with, you know, things behind the scenes. There was no, there was no communication. No one knew what was happening. No one, there, there just wasn't team talks or, you know, any sort of 
motivational meetings or updates about the club or where it's going. It was just, you just sort of, I don't know, you just sort of got on with it. You know, that the owner was never in. He obviously employed Alessandro uh, as as the chief exec, who, you know, um, was, gem- I do genuinely believe he's, a- he's actually a really nice person. I, you know, I, I did sort of get that feeling, but he was just a million miles out of his depth. I suppose the the most difficult thing was was the language barrier. Just he he didn't you know it does, it, it makes me laugh. But it it basically be like me going to Italy tomorrow and becoming a chief exec of a of a football club over there. It's it's an impossible task. You know you almost I, I, I suppose I don't know where you'd start with it. And the the communication side was just impossible. You know you're trying to explain how things were. And, I took Alessandro up into the hospitality lounges and walked him around the pitch and the stadium and tried to show him the sort of history of the East Stand and, you know, how the three new stands at the ground were, you know, how it worked and what it incorporated. And he di- they just didn't get it. It just, you know, I, I, not necessarily of a lack of maybe wanting to, they just didn't understand it. He came to me after a couple of weeks and he said, so, so what do we do if we, um, if we close all the hospitality and, uh, and we don't do any, any of this? And I said, I'd, I'd actually was, I was like sort of gobsmacked. I sort of said, well, it's, it's a good revenue generator. And we have, we have a lot of people who, who pay to come in here each game, you know, and we use the lounges for various other events and stuff as well. And they, they just didn't see it. They said, but... So what what are the costs, and what about if we just close it, and you know, then we save money? And I'm saying, well, you know, you know what it's like when you're having an argument, and you know you're not going to win. And I just basically said, yeah, you're not you're not going to lose any money, but equally, you you're going to make nothing at all. So, and it, it was the same with the advertising. They they sort of, the, you know, the pitch side boards. We went through all the locations and how much they were, and they were sort of like, oh, can you charge more? And I said, well, yeah, maybe on, on certain things, but we put the prices up last season. Um, and, you know, you, you just constantly felt it was a, it was a losing battle. So I, I think maybe Angelaria is some sort of mercurial business genius. I mean, think about it. If he became the CEO of, let's say, Unilever, he could just simply stop producing any products, shut all the... Imagine how much money they'd save. Imagine the saving to the bottom line. Just don't make anything. It's one of those, like it's, one of those it's business, amazing. It's one of those business books that he must have picked up at a waste management factory, man. That's where we're missing out here. Definitely. And uh, the other bit of genius, I hope you spotted. Just charge more. Just put all the prices up. Well, that's obvious. Why has no one thought of that? You can hear the despair in Tom's voice, <laughs> can't you, when he's talking about it? And okay, there's more. Another one was when they went and they they basically wanted to just get rid of the club shop they had no they they had no idea and they said that the club shop had no value and and this was the day after that he had basically taken his whole family in there and pretty much cleaned the place out every single italian and all of their family came in and all the adults had the shirts latin orient shirts with their names on and all the kids had the full kits and i just remember it being again being very very strange to then the next day he said to me he said I don't feel I don't feel we need the club shop I don't feel it you know I don't I don't feel we, we get value for money from the club shop 
Why do you need a club shop? Is there any evidence to suggest that merchandise is a revenue stream for football clubs? Shirt deals. I'm behind this guy. I think he's a genius. I think he's onto something. (laughs) He's coming at it with fresh eyes. But seriously, Matt, you know, (laughs) if your boss comes to you and says, yeah, I think you should close the club shop. I mean, I don't even know where you go with that argument because it's such a ridiculous argument that like Tom, Tom was really intimated in his interviews. He feels like he's having a losing argument every single every single day, and I'm guessing I'm guessing he's not the only one who's feeling like that. I've got some more ideas. What about if you don't play any matches, you can't get relegated because you can't lose. To be fair, that's not the worst one. I've <laughs> there were lots of rumours about some of the other stuff that Angelari uh, Angelari suggested which I feel is appropriate to share. So um, one of the ones was, um, why do we have to have an away kit to away kits? Why don't we just play in red every game? Save money. Yeah, absolutely. Because, you know, even if the other team's wearing red, they can just take their shirts off, can't they? Yeah. Yeah, it doesn't cost any more money. Or we no. can take our shirts off. Yeah. yeah. Or just all play in red. Everyone Why in red. would it matter? Yeah, I don't know. <laughs> yeah, I don't know. Maybe, maybe next we'll have two balls on the pitch. 11 balls on the pitch, one for each player. Speed up the game. Exactly. Um... <laughs> It's almost uh, like he's never won football club. He's a big tennis fan, apparently. That's fair. And lastly, let's just hear from Matt Porter again on his take on Angelari. Alessandro was a really nice fella. That was the, he, he was just he was just a bicchetti yes man. I mean, I think he was earning like he had a good six figure salary, and he was just sort of going to say yes as as often as he could to to preserve that. You know, fair enough. Six figure salary. He deserved it. I mean, I think at some point someone should have gone into his office and said, look, if you don't win the next game, you're going to get sacked. Well, it is easy to mock Alessandro Angeleri, so we will obviously be doing that extensively through the course of this podcast. But this is the point I have to take an interlude on the advice of our crack legal team and say that we did put these allegations directly to Alessandro and gave him the chance to respond. He didn't choose to respond. We also offered for him to come on the podcast and give his side of the story, which he also didn't choose to take us up on, which is fine. Come on a future episode, Alessandro. We'd still love to have you. But I would also say that um, amusing though the madcap ideas are, there were also some serious consequences to all this madness. And I will let Dave Victor talk about why. The money just got out of control, didn't it? it the, 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 the level of waste was just obscene. And there were some horrible stories about sort of particular sandwiches that would have to arrive uh, from sort of the other side of town for particular people at an incredible expense. It was just just waste, wanton waste. And, and, and I just found it horrible to watch. And you're used to bad games, you're used to bad results but I'm not used to being embarrassed and ashamed by the club. Um, Right, let's get back to matters on the pitch. So who replaced Russell Slader's the second manager in Francesco Bacchetti's reign. So that was um, that was Kevin Nugent. No introduction to Orient fans. Nugent obviously played for the O's, scored lots of goals for the O's, done his time as a coach, and 
he, he took over from Russell Slade. I think all went were you know, 22nd when he took over. I mean, he's a solid, decent, long-standing club legend. Well, no, okay, not legend. Um, he played for the club and scored some goals. Um, but he's a, uh, yeah, he was a d- pretty decent lower league player. Very straight up, very transparent, very honest. Uh, I think we're all sort of behind Nugent taking the job. Yeah, right? I think I think you're right. Look, he's an Orient man. He he would have had the club's best interest at heart. So shortly after Nugent took the job, a signing was made. A very important character in our drama, psychodrama, I'm going to call it. An Italian player by the name of Gianvito Plasmati. What do we know about him? Well, initially, nothing. Um, never heard of the bloke. But I, I suppose it was a, it, his signing was a microcosm of, of what was, what was going to happen throughout the rest of, of Bacchetti's reign. Um, 31 year old. Um, he played for 12 Italian clubs in the space of 13 years at that time. Six foot six. Anyone good? Foggia, Catania. Mean anything to you? I said anyone good. There you go. Um, his most prolific. Uh, season was uh, 2006. He scored 12 goals in 31 games for Serie C2. To be fair, for an, or- for an Orient striker, that's a, a pretty good return. Yeah, very low level. That's what, and you've got to remember, Orient weren't lacking, I didn't feel like Orient were lacking quality in, in that area at that time. Um, so yeah, it was, a bit of a strange, it was a bit of a strange one. I think the um, thing that he was most famous for was uh, getting a yellow card for dropping his shorts while part of a wall, while the opposition were taking a free kick to try and distract the uh, opposing player. Did it work? No. I mean, some people would call that thinking outside the box. Was Gian Vito Plasmati someone on Kevin Nugent's radar, do you think? I'm going to go with no. Man. <laughs> I'm going to go with no. That you should probably never heard of him, and this was somebody brought in uh, over his head. I heard on the grapevine that the night that Plasmati signed, he went out for dinner with um, Bacchetti himself uh, the night before a game, and of course he wouldn't have started that game, would he? Having not been match fit and been out the night before. Absolutely not. You don't want to throw someone who hasn't played all season into into a league start. That would be uh, unadvisable. You're wrong, James. He did play that game. That's why I never became a football manager. <laughs> um, let's have a listen to what Dave Victor said about Gianvito Plasmati. Again, he was a player that didn't seem to be ready for what he'd signed up for. Who knows with the, the CVs from a distance. Uh, but when he came in, he clearly wasn't match fit. Uh, he clearly wasn't able to complete 90 minutes. And... His tone was almost sarcastic. Uh, so Plasmati did start his first game, which was a Tuesday night under the lights home game against Preston North End. I suspect with someone of his calibre coming into the team, probably won that, didn't we? Well, no, that's where you're wrong, I'm afraid. Or uh, <laughs> it lost 2-0 in that game. Uh, Plasmati played 65 minutes up, up uh, alongside Jay Simpson. My memory of that game is right in front of where, uh, where I sat. He got, let's say, lightly tapped and went, went down with the most almighty blood-curdling scream. So Nugent didn't do that badly, but probably not that well. He took five points from six league games, which left Orient with a total of 15 points from 15 games and quite worryingly 20th in the table. And as a consequence of that, Nugent was relieved of his duties as manager and uh, Mauro Milanese came down from the sporting director role to, to take over as manager. 
What do you think about that? Uh, it's just a very, very strange and unsettling situation. So, yeah, very shortly after Mauro Milanese became manager, we made a, well, let, let's say a very high-profile signing. Who was that? That was a former Liverpool player, Andrea De Sena. Italian international. Yep, he was 33, left-sided. He originally joined Liverpool for £7 million in 2008. And suddenly he was playing for Orient, 20th in League One, and just one win from the last eight games. Um, and there were lots of rumours about, well, certainly amongst fans and in the press, of just how much it cost us to bring Andrea De Sena into the team. What do you know about that? It wasn't cheap. Um, and whatever figure it was, you know, reports at the time were anywhere between 12,000 a week and 20,000 a week. Um, I think the truth is maybe somewhere in the middle. That's 16,000 a week. Yeah, I can't say. But um, <laughs> what I will say is if you've got a player coming into a team on that money and you're in that dressing room and you're obviously not earning that money, you're going to be a bit pissed off, aren't you? Also, if you were going to spend that much money on a player, would you would you would you sign a left back? When has a left back for Orient ever scored a hat trick? Yeah, I don't know. Little in joke for the Orient fans there. Yeah, um, this is ridiculous. I mean, if you look at it, it's absolutely it's obscene. How can you spend that kind of money on a player in League One? Let's have a listen to what Dave Victor's take on signing De Senna was. I've no idea how he's ended up signing for the club, but he was another player who was clearly not fit. I mean, remember his first game at Bradford City, and he was puffing. Uh, he, you know, he, he was so far off the pace, it wasn't true. And it didn't matter how, how good his CV was. If, if you're not able to keep up with with the run of the play, and, you know, it's, it's not pretty in football's third tier. Um, you can get away with a lot, but you can't get away with not being fit. And he was nowhere, nowhere near fit. I think Dave's been a bit harsh. I remember seeing a few flashes of brilliance from De Senna in the games that he did play for us. Uh, in particular, he tried to volley a shot from the halfway line. Didn't go in. I think it's very <laughs> difficult, isn't it, to... To not laugh because it's so preposterous and such a ridiculous signing, and how anyone thought that would be a good move um, is is absolutely beyond me. I still can't really understand or try to explain how that came to fruition. Well, unfortunately, the signing of Andrea De Sena did not particularly help Mauro Milanese's quest to improve the situation of Leighton Orient. He amassed a total of four points from five league games, so below the run rate that we are at before, leaving us with a total of 19 points from 19 games, 20th in the table, just above relegation. Spelt the end of Mauro's time as a manager, went back to his sporting director role, and who did we bring in next? Probably after the experience of having an Italian manager, we went for a um, you know solid, good track record, Lower league experienced English manager, right? No, Matt. Once again, showing why you're not the owner of a club or a sporting director. No. Orient appointed Fabio Liverani, the former Italy international. Um, he did have managerial experience. Uh, he lasted seven matches in charge of Genoa at the start of the 2014 season, uh, but he was sacked after winning just once. So he was a natural choice to, to take over Orient. What I would say is he had a very stellar playing career. Yes, absolutely. Um, we didn't have to Google him. Uh, we knew who he was. Um, I did. 
Oh, fair enough. Uh, <laughs> here's the name, and I think, yeah. perhaps naively at that point, we thought, okay, they're getting it now. We're getting a proper a proper name in a guy who's managed before, a guy who knows who knows football. And I think there was there was some excitement around Liverani. He couldn't be any worse than what he already had. <laughs> okay, let's have a listen to what Dave Victor says about Fabio Liverani. At that point, I thought, well, this makes sense. You know, this is uh, an Italian owner. Um, he's, he, he's, he's taken some time to look at what he needs. Fabio Liberani is a man with an incredible CV. Um, and as a player, he was somebody that I was looking forward to meet. And they often say, you know, don't meet your heroes. And um, I was so underwhelmed uh, when I met uh, Fabio so what normally happens when a new manager comes in is uh, a new manager bounce. Uh, Orient's first game under Fabio Liverani was a home game against Peter United. What happened? Got bounced out, Matt. Bounced out 2-1. <laughs> uh, probably by the second game, we pulled, pulled it back together. That was uh, an away game against Barnsley. Yep, lost that one too. Yeah, okay. And, two on and, bounce, two on bounce. And do you know what? Things had got really bad there and Dean Cox, who had been a hugely influential player both on and off the pitch for, uh, I think, five seasons by then at Late and Orient, did the post-match interview and I think it's worth us listening to that. So you saw a first half and Late and Orient didn't force a single half chance, did they? No, no, it was a bad start. Um, and... Uh... Like you say, we didn't really create much, but uh, we, we take uh, spirit in the in the second half performance. Uh, we've had a few shots at goal, and you know, balls going across the box, and, and not being clinical enough really. But uh, you know, as you say, we, need, we do need to be better. Despite the fact that uh, Barnsley finished with ten men and a young substitute goalkeeper, I think you were the only person that tested him. <laughs> Was I? I don't know. Yeah. Well, that says it all, doesn't it? Um, yeah. No. Obviously, we're a bit low on confidence. Um, obviously, with. Four managers in the in the season. It's not great um, for many stretch of the imagination for the players, but uh, these are the cards we've been dealt with, and we're we're trying our best to to get the results. Often, when a new manager comes in, there's a bit of a lift around the club. That doesn't seem to have happened so far. Uh, maybe not. Obviously, not in results, but we're trying our best on the training pitch. Uh, like I can see four managers in the season is uh, I don't think I've ever heard of it before. So uh, it's been very difficult and. And the previous managers have, have had different ideas to, to the one we've uh, we've got now. So it's difficult to implement what exactly he wants on the on the pitch. Uh, obviously, the language barrier is a bit difficult from the sideline when he's trying to give instructions. Uh, some of the lads don't understand what he's saying, um, so it's difficult. Clearly, it's difficult. And what is the morale like now? Well, obviously, uh, with where we are in the league, it's pretty down. Uh, I think you can. You heard the supporters, I think some of them left before half-time, so obviously they're disgusted with it, and, and rightly so, it's not been good enough. Um, all I can say is it's, it's been a, one hell of a change since I've been here, um, and it, it's hard to take, uh, get to grips with it, to be honest. Can you believe that a year ago, top of the table, 44 points this stage last season, and what a contrast to now? Absolutely. That's all I can say, absolutely, what a contrast. What do you think will happen now in the new year? I don't know. If I'm honest, I don't know. Um, obviously, there's a window coming up. Does he, does he want everyone staying? Does he, is he bringing in different players? I don't know. He's obviously got his own ideas, and <clears throat> we're we seeing what what he uh, what avenue he goes down. I don't know, but uh, we hope we uh, start picking up some results. And do you remain fully committed to the cause personally? Oh, absolutely. Well, yeah, I'm here, aren't I? So um, I'm here, and I'm, I'm trying my best uh, every game I'm involved in. And you want to stay here? Yes, I do. Yeah, yeah. obviously, it's, it's a big change. 
Um, we might have to review it, I don't know. We'll have to wait and see. Okay. That was pretty brutal. You can hear the desperation in his voice. I feel like he's holding himself back. There's a lot he wants to say that he's not allowing himself to say. Things are clearly really, really bad if you behind read, the scenes. Yeah, if you read between the lines in that interview, then things are pretty horrendous. Cox's got a big heart, and he always gave everything for that club. And I think when you've got a player like that, who loves the Orient like he does, saying things like that, you know... One of the things he mentioned was the fact that Liverani doesn't speak any English and the, the challenges around that. And I guess we should be fair and say there are examples of where managers have come in, particularly in the Premier League, who also didn't speak English and have had some success. That didn't happen at Orient. No. Like you said, there's managers that go into the Premier League that haven't spoken English at the start. They've, they've had success. I remember Pochettino at Southampton had... His English was, wasn't great at the start. He wouldn't speak to journalists in English, but he would try his best and change room into those players to speak in English. But you've got to remember what Liverani's walked into. I mean, even if, even if he walked into an Italian club that gone through that, it would have been, you know, so difficult to manage. But to come in, the whole culture chain, the, the culture clash, and I just think he was on, on to... It was always going to be so, so difficult for whoever took that job. And like Cox said in that interview, four managers in such a short space of time. And you've got players who were there the previous season, they're thinking, well, hang on, this time last year we were top of the league, looking to go into the championship. Suddenly we've added all these guys on big wages. We've had four managers. I don't know what the hell is going on. And we're losing every single game. What, what am I supposed to do here? Four managers by December the 20th. Yeah, yeah that's just absolutely astonishing. Let's have a listen to what Nathan Clark's take is on a Liverani team talk in Italian. More often than that, we had the goalkeeper coach, uh, Roberto, um, sort of trying his best to try and um, help uh, in that sense. You know, Liverani would would certainly have his um, plan of what he wanted to say wrote down and he would try his best to, to say that. Um, and if if there was anything else, Roberto would certainly translate that over to the group um, as best he could. Um, I don't know whether it's any different to any other manager, but he sort of came in and and did you know said what he said and sort of left us to his own devices really um, to get ready and prepared. Um, and again, would see him just as we were we were heading out. I guess. Did you feel like you were getting onto the pitch without? A clear plan. Um, I, I felt personally we were going out, possibly not in where the position we were. We were, you know, we were not really getting to. Obviously, you you go out there to to scrap and to fight and and everything else. But again, I think just where they've come from and the players that they were, you know, I just don't think possibly that league suited how they wanted to manage and how they wanted to put out what they wanted to get across to the players um you know certainly when you you are struggling you're up against it you need to uh, to be fighting and um and scrapping and um like i say i don't know whether possibly they weren't weren't used to to what you know that league brings so nathan mentions that the liverani team talks were translated by the goalkeeping coach a guy called rob Gagliardi. I actually was very fond of 
Rob Gagliardi, mostly because he's pretty much the most handsome man I've ever seen. Ever? Let's say ever in football. So back on the pitch, Orient somehow actually won both games over the Christmas period. So quite convincing victories over Crawley and Yeovil. But after that, ended up losing three and drawing one of the four games in January. On the 31st of January, uh, we lost 4-1 at home to Scunthorpe United and Liverani was absolutely livid in the press conference afterwards. So let's have a listen to what he said then. Fabio, thanks for joining us. What do you make of that performance? È la più brutta partita che abbiamo fatto da quando siamo qui. Una squadra senza dignità, senza cuore, senza palle, senza nulla. Quindi una squadra senza niente. This is the worst game since I'm in charge. Uh, I saw a team without guts, without heart, without courage, without anything. Why? Da quando che sono arrivato qua, solo chiacchiere, solo chiacchiere. Poca voglia di lavorare e di fare. Da oggi in poi si cambia totalmente registro. Non ci sta più il day off, doppio allenamento, si cambia registro. Because since I've arrived, uh, I've had a lot of uh, players moaning. There's always someone to, to have a say on everything. Uh, but then uh, it's not shown on the pitch. Uh, our capacities are not shown on the pitch. So from now on, things are changing. Now there's no more day off during the week and double training during the week. What other changes will you be making? Che cambi farai? Obiettivamente avrei dovuto cambiarli tutti. Quindi I should have replaced 11 players today. Ouch. He is not happy. What's your take on that, James? At this point it just feels like everything's fallen apart. And you don't you don't back Liverani to fix that. I have an inkling you could be right there. And on that note I think we're going to bring episode two to a close. Um, could you just quickly remind us where Orient stand in the league, James? Orient sit 23rd with 26 points from 27 games. That is bad. I mean, it can only be one place worse. If you're mm-hmm. bottom, then the only way is up. So maybe maybe 23rd is worse. The only way is down, as we're about to, about to see. So brilliant. Well, I really enjoyed... We ended on quite a sour note, didn't we? But I am particularly looking forward to episode three because episode three is going to be entirely devoted to the Leighton Orient reality show. Um, Do you want to give any sneak preview into that, James? Well, it's not often we get Hollywood A-listers on an Orient podcast. And (laughs) no, they're not on the podcast, but Nicole Kidman does play a starring role in the next episode. I'm excited about that. So um, on that note, I think let's leave it there. No, I'm going to go away and revise lots of Nicole Kidman film-related gags for episode three. I mean, I've been watching Orient with my eyes wide shut for years, Matt, so uh, I don't know where you've been. You've already revised them. That's good. So we should be ready. That was a lot of fun. Thanks, everyone, for listening, and I will bid you goodbye. Arrivederci. Arrivederci.